podcast world. We are live with another episode of The Value. I'm your host, Kevin Valley, and I want to thank each and every one of you who reached out to me in the past few days saying, hey, Kevin, I love the rebrand. It is so on point. And I invite you to share it with one friend to send them to thevalue.show and make sure that they give that five-star review so we can keep the love going. So today I want to introduce you guys to Kimberly Ofori. Kimberly Ofori is an entrepreneur, strategist, and business consultant from the Netherlands. She is currently the managing director at Ophorian Company, which is a strategy and innovation agency where she helps scale-ups and corporations to innovate their business models and their overall strategic positioning in their respective markets. Now, thanks to Kimberly's unconventional corporate and entrepreneurial career from climbing the corporate ladder starting at a very young age to working and living in the Middle East, Africa and Europe where she founded and sold two companies. She has amassed a tremendous amount of knowledge and experience on what it takes to choose to be in the lead in your own life, in your career and in leading others. And this is why she has been coaching leaders and leadership teams on personal leadership using her lead method, a personal leadership methodology that she developed. And of course, we're gonna speak about that in that conversation with Kimberly. But also in this conversation, we really dig deep into idea development and business model design. From a practical perspective, as Kimberly speaks about her experiences building and um, scaling a few businesses of her own, and including some of her own favorite failure stories. So a lot of gems jam-packed into this episode, and I look forward to getting into it. So without further ado, Kimberly, take it away. Kimberly, how are you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm doing great, Kevin. Thank you so much for having me. No, I mean, happy that you are able to join. So you mean you have that immigrant story, right? Well, I guess at least your parents, right? Your mother is from Suriname, your dad is from Ghana, you're first generation Dutch, you know, you, you speak Netherlands. Right. Yeah, speak <laughs> yeah, Netherlands, yeah. All right, nice. So I know you would have had to start your corporate journey pretty early at 16. Can you just walk us through that? Yeah, that's true. It's always interesting when I talk about this because I, it was never my intention. I don't think it's anybody's intention as, as a young age to start working very early. And also coming from that immigrant household, you know, school is your number one priority, right? I know my grandmother was hitting me at the back of my head, telling me your diploma is your first husband, right? It's your first man. So it's, it's something that you have to do regardless of your situation. And at the same time, I found myself in a situation where, unfortunately, financially, we were struggling at the time due to a lot of factors. And I felt personally responsible to contribute to take care of some of, if I couldn't do all, some of these financial responsibilities that uh, my mother had. And it was never a conversation that I had with my mother to say, you know what, I'm going to help you. I'm going to drop out of school and I'm going to do this. It was more so, hey, I'm going to get a job. I've started doing it for more hours. And she started noticing it. And we never really had the conversation. I thought about it last year when I did an interview. We never had the conversation. It was more, I was very responsible, very mature already at that age 
Mm-hmm. And so all I did was communicate that I was going to think about what I wanted to do with school further. And in the meantime, I was going to be working because I didn't want her to feel that I was doing it for her. No mother wants to feel like their child is taking on responsibilities that they are taking on. So, yes, I did find myself getting a job, working full time. So and then contributing quietly to the bills in a way that was not that would take a lot of pressure off of uh, the situation. And that was actually the start of me finding out that, hey, I can actually develop my professional skills in the workplace as well as make money. And that suited me very well at the time. Yeah, you were selling insurance, right? Yes, I actually started as a deaf insurance uh, advisor, yeah. For deaf people, you mean? (laughs) Well, it was funeral insurance, I should call it that. Oh, death. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah. Okay. But was it your job to, like, was sales part of your main role? So I started off uh, when I was still doing it. At the time, it was definitely uh, more sales. And then I qualified to become more of an advisor. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I I understand that you would classify yourself as an introvert, right? You know, so. Yes. People are generally petrified of sales, you know, talking to people, (laughs) saying something that you didn't create yourself trying to convince people to sell these things. And, you know, because I think, I mean, I draw this parallel because I think it would, probably would have helped you a lot in your entrepreneurial journey and everything. You know, so like what drove you to find that courage to, you know, right, I'm going to go and sell these products to folks. I think one of the biggest things there was, and actually before I got that job, because that job I did full-time, but before that I was doing part-time after school call center work. Ah. which was also really out of my league. I was doing all kinds of jobs because I felt the need because I wanted to, but also I really wanted to be independent at a very young age. I didn't know it then, but I think that's what drove me at the time. So the reason I chose, I didn't really choose it because I was trying to challenge myself. These were the higher paying jobs. That was just the honest truth. So economically, it made sense in my mind that if I'm going to work, I might as well get the best options out there for my age. Yeah. And I did apply for like Burger King and my and the McDonald's. And then they told me like the salary, three euro. I remember very well. I'll never forget. It was three euro 65 per hour. And I left. I was like, <laughs> this is not my portion. <laughs> I just knew this was not what I was going to do. So my motivation at that time was purely, okay, where can I make the most money? And if that means I have to get up out of my comfort zone, I guess so be it. Yeah, got you. All right. So, I mean, I have so many friends that would have upped and say, hey, but you're going to Dubai to go and work as an airline, airline hostess or host or, or, or what have you. And I know that you would have upped and said, well, not to go and work in the airline industry, but you'd have upped and said, hey, I got a job in Dubai going across there. I want to make it happen. And then you reach there and then a door shut in your face. Like what happened? Yeah, that was interesting. I applied for a job remotely. I was applying for jobs whilst I was there. Didn't on holiday, didn't get enough time to get a, a secure job, but I eventually continued the process remotely with one company that was a UK-based company. They had branches in Dubai. They were looking to set up and expand in Dubai as well. And after a long process, they finally hired me for the job as a business manager. And the package was great. I remember, you know, with housing and all of this was secured. Salary was good, tax-free. I was happy. 
it's tax-free there. So I was like, whatever you're making, that's for you. And I remember I had this job at the bank. I was working at the Avian Amra Bank at the time. And I said to myself, this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. I didn't even know, think that I could nail it. So I took a risk and then quit my job, gave up my apartment and moved. And when I got there, and that's, I think, the story that you're referring to is um, the day that I arrived there, the next day I reported for work and the manager was telling me that they had been trying to reach me, but I was on the plane. So I didn't know of anything. And they were like, well, we just had a meeting on Friday. We decided not to open the branch anymore. So we kind of don't need you anymore. (laughs) Damn. So yeah, that was the situation. So yeah, long story short, we sat there for like an hour looking at each other's faces. I remember I was so calm. I don't know how I did that, but I just felt like I made it this far. I took this big of a leap. I'll find a way. Mm-hmm. Right now, all I can do is look at the now. So we walked to the ATM. She gave me my one month advance in cash and I took the car back. And I think I took some time that day. And then I, a few days later, I was applying for jobs and I didn't stop until I found one a few months later. Nice. Yeah. And you would have worked there for about six months or so? Yeah. Yeah. It was approximately six months. Yeah. So I know you ended up in Spain and that's where your entrepreneurial journey started. But why Spain? What happened? I think there were different, many factors. But at the time I was ready to leave Dubai. I wasn't ready to live in the Netherlands again. I was accustomed to a certain lifestyle now. Ah. I was enjoying the sun. That was one. But I was also looking for something in between. I was, If I was going to go back to the Netherlands, I felt like I was going back to the rat race of having to run all the time, the struggle life to say that the, mm-hmm. even though I wouldn't be struggling, but just that mindset of having to do more and be more. And, and I felt like, if I could go to a place where I could really expand my horizon at the same time, be in an environment that is soothing and relaxing. And I love to be near the water and like at the beach and that's environment I wanted to be in now. And I was like, if I have the option now to choose, why would I choose to go back to a place where I didn't feel like I was living my best life to say the least. So I think first and foremost, it was the environment. It was also closer to family than Dubai, but still sunny enough. Those are some of the reasons why I chose Spain. Right. And well, Spain didn't work out. You didn't, you can get a job there. <laughs> because so you know. <laughs> I definitely overestimated my qualifications, how important it would be if I was going to choose not to live in a city like Madrid or Barcelona, that I would have to speak Spanish better than I was speaking Spanish at the time. So I chose to live at the coast and you have to speak Spanish if you want to do anything. So I learned that the hard way, but that also pushed me to uh, look at other options. And some people would say, oh, just move or find another way. At that time, I felt like I was valuing my free time so much and that autonomy of time and deciding for myself what I was doing that I thought if I can use some of that time to find something else to do, which would be mine, which is build a business or something, that would be interesting if I could take that chance. And it wasn't entirely like, oh, I want to be an entrepreneur. I also saw that whilst I was in that space of not finding a job, that I wasn't the only one. So this is how the first idea of the recruitment platform came about, jobsinmarbella.com. 
Right. Oh, that's how you pronounce it. Jobs in Marbella. Okay. So yeah, you would have started three online platforms at the time. How many of them failed? How many of them succeeded? Well, I started uh, many actually, but Jobs in Marbella was, I think, the second one that I was really serious about looking how to scale. The only reason why I didn't personally scale that one was because it wasn't something I was personally invested in as much. So I wasn't looking to make this a legacy business, but the technology that I was able to hire people for to build was interesting enough to exit. So that one was kind of successful in the sense that it was interesting enough for another business to take on, but it's relative, right? And all the other platforms that I built were mostly just really marketplaces that I was trying to find a gap between what wasn't already there in Spain and what did I know I could provide with a platform. Right. So, I mean, I guess I want to get into the um, thought process in what well, when in terms of developing those ideas, right? So jobs in Marbella, in terms of conceptualizing that, like, can you just walk me through the thought process that went through your mind and then getting it out? Yeah. Yeah. I think that the first thing for me was, I was looking for a solution at first that was already there to the problem. So how do people find jobs in this place if they have my profile? Mm -hmm. And when I found out that wasn't sufficient for my specific needs, I started to think about, okay, so there's a gap. How would I fill that if I could? And so I started to really look into external markets. So if Spain or the area that I'm in is not working, doesn't have that, How are other countries doing this? Because I can't be the only expat in the world. Then I saw that there were, you know, obviously you have this reference to the United States. Usually if it's successful there, there's some form that you can apply here. So I was looking, okay, Europe seemed at the time to be lagging when it came to job boards. And the U.S., it was booming. There were job boards everywhere. However, it was just listings of jobs. And so I still was not finding that thing that I needed, which was, I don't want to go over a list of jobs as an employer and definitely not as an employee without knowing if there's any match, any chances of me getting the job. So I was really the target audience and that really helped me to develop a concept that I was proving my own assumptions at some points, which is not the right way to do any design thinking research. But at the time, that is what I knew because mind you, I had never done anything that remotely had to do with business in that sense. I thought I was doing what I thought was right. So I was applying all the questions that I had to my journey as an expat and then trying to find out what would I need. Then secondly, I started to speak to other people, online forums. I started to read about, you know, what are people struggling with? What is happening in the community? If I'm in the supermarket or in a restaurant and I hear somebody speak either Dutch or English or something, and I would happen to be in a conversation with them, I would ask them what they did. And if they weren't working, you know, they would usually share why they weren't working and why it was so hard. So I used that external information, added it with my own. And I realized that, okay, if I can either find or help develop a platform that doesn't just list, but also match people based on their skills, then we're increasing the probability of them getting hired for the job when they apply, but also employers will have this added benefit of finding people faster and more qualified beforehand because of data. So my mind was kind of step-by-step, I was learning and understanding what would be added value for each of these parties. And I had no idea how that would look like on scale, 
only thing I knew that this would be something that in the very basic form, it would work. And I think that was the most important thing for me that to start, to start building. And this is where I started to teach myself how to build websites with Code Academy and all of these YouTube videos. And I call it YouTube University and just really learning how can I build this MVP before I even knew that that was an actual thing that you would do as an entrepreneur. I didn't know that you would build an MVP first. I just thought, hey, I may as well build something that is the basic idea of what I have or a prototype in this. I think that was the concept. It wasn't, there was no strategy in place. So there were so many things that obviously now I know better that I would have thought about long-term. But at the time I was just thinking, I see a problem, I see a solution and there's a gap there. So yeah, that, that was that. Yeah, I mean, it's very value proposition thinking, right? So just like I said, yeah. you know, you saw a problem, saw a solution, and you thought of ways you could add value on an ongoing basis to um, various stakeholders, even if not necessarily yeah. the customers themselves, but people who might be targeting the people, targeting your yeah. customers. And I suppose that's why you got a recruitment agency firm in Madrid interested in that. So, I mean, how did that... I guess that courting phase go, maybe you approach them, they approach you. And what was that negotiation like in terms of selling to that recruitment firm? Yeah, I think I really got lucky in that because the platform wasn't like at any scale that I would say it should be getting attention from a big corporate. Mm-hmm. But I think that it was innovative enough if they did would hear from it that they would want to know more. And I think that was the key. It was the innovation was interesting enough to catch your attention if you did get your hands or your eyes on it. So they approached me. Firstly, I saw unusual activity with people from that company creating accounts. Mm. And I was like, okay, this could be a big client. So I'm thinking I'm going to call them like, okay, let's become, you know, a B2B relationship. But they were thinking otherwise. And I think at the time they were testing it and trying to see if it worked. And I believe they filled a few vacancies very quickly. So it was very quickly that I had my first meeting with them where we had this discussion about, hey, how can we be of more added value? And it's very interesting because in hindsight, you know, I hadn't protected my IP, none of that. I wasn't thinking about it. They could have just gone with the information I gave them, built it themselves. Like they had the money, they had the resources, they could have done that. But I think I didn't understand how much of a proprietary technology I had developed with my team. It would have taken them to bring in experts as well that they didn't have in-house because this is early days of machine learning, right? For most corporates. I mean, the startups were, were using it, but the corporates weren't even looking at it. So for them, it was like, there she's applying this technology that's relevant to us now. Like we heard about artificial intelligence, but now... It's relevant to us. And obviously, there's this whole space of finding out what is going to be the best deal for them to build it themselves or to buy. Mm -hmm. And this was a bargain for them in hindsight, but it was interesting enough for them to want to adapt to their portfolio and, and build a strategy around it. One of the things that I think is a learning for both parties was that once that happened, the, the organization wasn't ready to handle such a new strategic way of doing things because their whole organization was built on the old way of recruiting, right? 
So where do you put your people now that we're doing this? Who is going to monitor the innovation roadmap? How are you going to implement that into your new strategy? What does that make the company now? Are we now a technology company? So all of these questions actually became conflicting because that wasn't thought about beforehand. So I think that they never really were able to scale this solution internally because they weren't ready. I think they adapted it too early at the time. But that was a very interesting transaction where, yeah, it was innovative enough for them to want to try. And the risks were low because it wasn't like I was asking them a billion. No, like that, you de-risk it for them. So, I mean, what I took away from that, you know, is the key selling factors for them was innovation, technology. But, you know, typically we you think, okay, you must have a certain level of sale before you get an investor or acquirer interested. But you didn't necessarily need to demonstrate that as a key selling factor. Okay, that's cool. You said something that I want to hop on a little bit because you said that you and your team built out this technology, right? So, I mean, you're in Spain, you're in a country, you don't speak the language. I mean, although it's a lot easier to learn in Dutch, you don't speak the language. But how are you able to assemble a team and everything to get this done? Because I think we overlook this a lot. The wrong team could bring you to your knees regardless of how great your business model is. That's a good one. So actually, I was the team and I had outsourced the building of that particular technology. So what Google University and YouTube University taught me is that I could outsource to India, right? right? And so I was going deeper and deeper into kind of finding out how can I make use of this? So I was finding all of these websites where yet yeah, you had this very technology you know, focused people and you had people who could do things around it. As I had built the MVP or the prototype of the website, they were able to maintain and, and develop it over time. And then the technology itself also was another group of people who were working on that. They were really only there on project basis, but that was really necessary for me to even get remotely as efficient as the website was running at the time. And mind you, it was in a very short span of time that I did this. And this is also why had I given it more time in hindsight to really develop and see what it could become and develop the technology of these things, if I had been patient enough as a founder to really understand what I'm sitting on, mm -hmm. this could have actually been very big. And this could have actually been something that would have sold for 10, 20 times that amount. But at the time, I just thought it was cool what I was doing. And I just thought it was a cool experience. And it wasn't really a need I was solving anywhere for myself. Yeah, I mean, lessons learned. And the important thing there is that, you know, the idea factory is you, is in your head. Yeah. You'll have a ton more ideas as you had come to know. But I think like what you said is very key. Execution is everything. And execution, sometimes people think, the quality of what you're delivering, but execution can also mean how much time are you investing to develop this to a certain level. Being so exit focused or what's the next thing focused can sometimes be very limiting to the potential of your business or any venture. Yeah, yeah it's good to start. I mean, as much as possible, it's good to start with the end in mind. You know, am I building this company to sell eventually? Am I building this company to be my legacy? That sort of thing. All right. So before we get back to you know you moving back to the Netherlands and starting um, Apprenner. I know you love to talk about your failure stories. And I know you you say that there's a reason that a majority of newly formed businesses fail within the first five years. All right. So if you could just maybe speak on your top two failure stories and then you get into the reasons that companies fail. 
I was trying to tap tap into more product focused okay. solution because I do not have a technology background. I also didn't like the idea that I was always going to have to depend on others mm. to build something. And I also wasn't trying to become this code genius uh, or anything. So I was thinking, how can I use the knowledge and the skills that I've already developed and then tie it to, you know, and make it like a technology-based company without it having to be a technology company. And I thought, okay, combination of platforms and marketplaces, I was really, really intrigued with that, but still having physical products in in some shape or form is something that was interesting. Now the space where I'm working in, where I work a lot in deep tech and all of these things, I know people would say, if I talk about drop shipping or something like that, that you would laugh. It's like, is that even a business? But there are multi-million dollar businesses with dropship models. It's not a small thing. I think that the internet and, and Instagram and, and all of these YouTube channels have maybe made it to look like some kind of joke, but it's actually a really, really huge opportunity for a lot of economies if you do it in the right sector with the right products, I think. My first thing that I tried after that was dropship businesses. Okay. A lot of them. I did hair extensions before AliExpress existed, right? I did baby clothes. I tried, I think, I can't remember. I think I also did like technology too. Then I was starting to look at, okay, how can I tap into that sector of people who are in the gaming industry? So I was looking for, you know, things that were newly developed from the gaming industry. And then I started to look at how can I supply offices with office equipment because I was looking more to how can I make a B2B proposition. I was trying all of these different things. I think there was even a time, well, then I developed a clothing line. Later on, I also tried this brand called Black Girl Magic. I remember creating my logo in like Canva, even though it wasn't Canva, I was, I think it was PowerPoint at a time. And then, (laughs) so I was really trying the most and I was learning different things from each and every one of them and applying it to the next one. Right. And so I remember with the hair business, that was for me the most memorable one because I did everything from scratch. I really, aside from sourcing the hair, which is also a step that you can take, I was really into, you know, understanding where every cent of my money goes and how long it takes to get from this step to the next step, exactly what steps to take. So I was really into the framework of, can I understand my business better than anyone else? And that was the biggest learning for me. And the reason I did that was because I had now read up upon the opportunities that I had let out with my previous startup, with the one in Spain, that I didn't understand the value of what I was doing. So now I was like, no, I'm going to (laughs) know. I'm going to know exactly what I'm building. So I was really calculating everything. I was trying to minimize my costs by all means necessary. I remember starting off in the Netherlands, we have these supermarket sections where they leave boxes. People can leave drop boxes, empty boxes, or the supermarket drops boxes. And then you can just pick them up if you need boxes. And so I would go there, handpick the boxes that I could use that would look presentable so I could ship these items in nicely. 
so that I didn't have to pay for packaging. So it was these kind of things, but that would mean me going around town with the bus. I didn't have a car at the time. So, or walk or go with the bicycle, walk around. People would look at me and I would be in the bus with these boxes. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> that's definitely, um, I know you guys have a saying called, um, do normal. That's act normal. <laughs> Immigrant girl. So they were like, look at this black girl, like, uh, and the black people were looking at us like, why are you embarrassing us? It was, just, it was a lot. <laughs> like people were looking at me, why, girl? We were, we're trying to come up. We're trying to come up. <laughs> so I was just going around and then I would go to like, firstly, I was calculating like the nitty gritty of would it be cheaper for me to print my stickers myself or would it be cheaper to buy it in bulk? Like I was doing these kind of things. And then I started doing internet marketing and finding out, okay, how can I maximize my money on Facebook ads when that was still a thing that was, I think your return of investment was significant, right? And so I mastered that skill. I was like making, I remember I got to a point where I knew what ad sets I would have that would cost me 0.0001 cents and would get me a lot of traffic that was actually buying. Like I was that deep into understanding my target audience. So really learning and understanding exactly the language of my customer. So that business was great in so many senses for me, for my business ethics, for understanding what business was really about, aside from what they teach you in business school, and really the practicalities of things and how to steer people, how to, you know, I had, I hired somebody who would be doing 24-7 customer service or virtual assistant. That business was interesting because it was the first time that I was really on it in that way. You could say I knew what I was doing, at least for what I could control. I didn't know what I was doing long-term or I also didn't really have a strategy in place in terms of what do I want out of this business? I just wanted to make the most money. I remember the first few weeks. So I got my first orders really quickly. I had this Shopify account. Shopify was very new at the time. I had a Shopify website and then I had this Facebook shop. The Facebook shop was going crazy, but I wanted to go to Shopify because I didn't want to have like this hurdle between us. I wanted to keep my customers closely. And I remember I I started making a thousand euros consistently a day, a day. day. So that was the first time that I knew I understood, okay, how can I get reoccurring kind of revenue that is manageable? So I knew what I had to do to replicate it. And obviously you have fluctuations you know, on Sundays, it would be a spike because people are thinking about, okay, let me buy this hair before I go start work tomorrow. At the end of the month, there were spikes, but I was not really going under that thousand a day, but that was revenue, right? That was not profit. And, and as much as I was trying to control and the cost, I was not able to get a good deal from my supplier that would allow my margins to be interesting enough. So because I was drop shipping, I didn't have anything to say about prizes. Like, what do you mean? (laughs) You're buying one at a time. What are we talking about, right? So drop shipping is that model was great to start getting clientele. But now if I wanted to make serious money, 
I would have to start looking at how can I buy in bulk? And now I haven't calculated how I'm reinvesting my reserves, right? So I was reinvesting it in buying the stock and marketing. So, and then obviously packaging and stuff like that. But apart from that, I wasn't paying myself, which was fine at the time. But where am I now finding the leeway to buy in bulk? That would mean that I would have to stop taking orders so that I could use the money that I had already made to buy in bulk. But I was buying the hair based on what, as soon as they were buying. So there was no money coming in before that. And I wasn't putting money aside for future purchases either because I was buying packaging with that based on those orders. That really was like, came to a point where I was like, okay, I'm making so much money, but really I'm not. So it was like, that's when it really hit me that there's more to this thing, but I knew revenue and profit were two different things, but that's when I really knew revenue and profit are two different things. Because how do you organize what happens after you get the revenue in matters more than what you can reinvest in the business because it's actually more important to find out, okay, am I building to scale? Then am I building to maintain what I already have? Because truth be told, I could have kept that business for 12 years and not made any money and be the biggest supplier ever because I could not by any means with that model in place negotiate a better deal. I tried, but what happens is that as long as you're not, you know, I wasn't applying pressure to that. Let's put it that way. I wasn't applying pressure to the supplier. He sees me trickling in sometimes. Okay, that's nice. That's cute, right? (laughs) But you're not bringing in bulks of money that he can say, you know what, let me give you my time and let's see if we can, if I can, even cut you out because that's what I actually needed to do. They were resellers as well. So like I was already paying the middleman. How was I going to go to the next stage and actually go to the source? And this is where it actually started to get really interesting. This is why I also use it as a business case is because now I have to understand supply chains and I have to understand what the markups were at every stage. And I had to also understand that for scale, Am I in the right position now? Or, and who am I in that value chain? Uh, and I was at the very end. Like the customer is not even there. I'm the last resort. Like you're, that last person was still selling to me. Like, And it had already gone through all of these stages with all of these markups. Okay. So it's like, I'm paying premium price, actually. I'm paying customer prices. And now I still have to mark up that retail price. That's crazy. I couldn't be competitive anymore at some point because of this. And I was not in the position to switch models unless I was going to find money elsewhere to be able to buy these books. Because again, the money that was going in was going out. So this was a really interesting case for me. The last thing that I want to say about this model, this case was also that I had no control over quality. I had absolutely zero say over quality. One day I'm getting good hair. Next day the hair is plastic. It was horrible. So, and then who was dealing with that? Like the customer's buying from me. I cannot send hair back to whatever source it was coming from. Um, And they had already paid me. 
So now I'm taking a loss. I have to order new hair. By the time that I've handled the dispute with the, with the supplier, my customer needs to be paid in the meantime or compensated in some way. And so also the, this model was not working because I had no say in quality checks or I couldn't say I wanted to do, I want you to do this and this and this before it ships out. And I can give you the green or the red light. There's no green or red light. I promise my customer they're going to get the hair in two days. That's what I want, but that's what you're going to get then. So it was all of these big factors that I had to calculate in when it comes to choosing a business model like that. I think drop shipping is still a great model for some things, but then one of the biggest learnings would be you need to calculate everything from A to C, time invested, but also the scalability of things and then the, the effect that quality will have on your business. I mean, definitely. It's not like you did a lot of things, right? So you had your customer insights, right? You knew your customers, you knew what they wanted. You had a solution for their, well, their problems, the problems that they wanted here. You knew your numbers on a regular basis down to the cost per lead and everything from Facebook. But, your, but it sounds like your biggest challenge is what I would call your competitive advantage, right? Especially when it comes to supply and negotiation power. And that sounds like what crippled your business. And I was going to ask if you would recommend the dropshipping model and if there are ways to mitigate that or to control against, you know, ensuring that you get proper quality from your suppliers, ensuring that you could get attractive pricing from your suppliers or at least positioning yourself high up in their value chain. I mean, aside from ordering in bulk, I mean, are there different ways to, to manage that? If had you asked me a few years ago, I would have wholeheartedly say, yes, I recommend dropshipping. Now I still do with caution. I definitely think it could work, but I definitely think people need to not underestimate the work that needs to be put in before you start. So it's been made to look so easy. You can start in a day and that's not it, man. It's not it anymore. Let me put it that way. There's so much that you have to look out for. And one of them is really just the competitive advantage, but also just the competition in the market. People have access to some of these platforms that you would be drop shipping for themselves, right? Whereas beforehand, people were not really native to ordering online. It was scary. So if you have a platform that looks trusted, you would buy it through them, which would be your platform. Now I can go on Amazon. I can go on eBay. I can go to AliExpress. I can go to all of these platforms myself. And so what is the need of me using you and paying a premium for it? The only reason you would do that is if I'm selling you something that I cannot easily get or because you are giving me something that guarantees something that I find valuable. So that could either be quality, which you cannot guarantee as a drop shipper, or it could be perhaps that you're shipping something that is so complex and you're taking complexity out of it through to because you're an advisor or you're giving them transparency and process or you're giving them something that is more than just the value of the product. So I think in that sense, if you have something like that, that is drop shipped. I've seen some people get really great response with these t-shirt printers, which is like everybody's trying to start their own business now in t-shirts and things like that. If you have a middleman, which is you, that can import that, advise you on the best 
way to do things and kind of be in between and that's how you're drop shipping, then fine. I think the drop shipping for speed or cheapest price, I think that's past already, right? People are no longer needing you to do that. But and I also think when it comes to advisory, it could be very interesting if you are selling anything that people would want to have more information about how to use and you're somebody, you have a platform where you have user cases and you have videos and you have manuals in English, which sometimes is not the case. Things like that, that give people the reassurance that they can get the value out of the product. I think that would make you stand out a bit. But again, if you could find it, they probably could too. Yeah. And I love the focus on, you know, where's the value? I mean, that's what I try to, I don't want to say teach, but that's what I try to bring awareness to, find any value in various business models and whatnot. All right. So we're back in the Netherlands now. We left Spain. We're back. We learn how to code on Code Academy and YouTube and Google University. We start Appreneurs, a social marketplace for African entrepreneurs and investors or what have you. You code this yourself in the early stages and you launch the website and it crashes because you have over 6,000 applicants. Now, <laughs> I'm like, but how did that happen, right? 600, I, 600. 600? Yeah, yeah. Oh, sorry. I, okay, I saw another zero somewhere. Okay, so over, but you mean, all right, so you had over 600 applicants on launch day. Again, this is introverted, Kimberly. How did you build this audience? Is this your audience that continued on from when you were doing the hair extensions business and other businesses? Like, did you have some sort of pre-launch events or so like what did you do it was so interesting because i was looking to do business in africa for africa while first of all not being in africa at the time and also my network was very limited in africa you have to understand that yes my father is Ghanaian, but i was raised Suriname with the dutch culture and i hadn't been to ghana until a very later in my life so in my teens so for me I, and I didn't go back until much later as well. So for me, it wasn't something that I had built over time. Now, I had learned something in Dubai, and that was the value of LinkedIn. As I was working there, LinkedIn was huge over there. It wasn't as much here in the Netherlands. So I had never used it before I went there. I had an account. I didn't use it. In Dubai, I learned the value of networking online. It was perfect for me because as an introvert or some people would call me an ambivert, being able to have social interaction when I was comfortable, when I had the energy to do it was very important for me. And I could do it at a very, the bar was very low when it came to just sending a connection request and saying, hey, I'm interested in your profile, whatever note you put with it. It was very low key. So I had learned as I was developing this concept and this idea, as I was researching if it was necessary, I was using LinkedIn for that to go into LinkedIn groups, find out what are they talking about, go on Facebook groups, find out what they're talking about, what's happening on the continent. Okay, I see a need for one platform to do all of these things. And as I was doing that, I would connect with people that I thought were interesting on LinkedIn and for later purposes. I wasn't building an audience saying, hey, I'm building something. I wasn't telling them that. I was just connecting with them and they were like, who's this girl from Dubai, right? So it was more of like using that for future reference. And there wasn't hundreds of people at the time. It was maybe 
a few dozens of people that I had connected with, but they were key people to me that I maybe saw on Twitter, they were getting traction and things like that. So there was some kind of strategic element to it where I was like, okay, this is an interesting person to have in my network, regardless if they were going to be using my platform or not. So that's what the only, I think, thought out thing that I did before launching. Now, when I had finished building the front of the platform, like how people would get in. And then the first page, if you you can imagine, was just like how you log into LinkedIn, you have your timeline, and then you have, you could create your profile. You were onboarded, very simple. You could create your profile. Now you have a timeline and then you could share who you were as an entrepreneur and what you were building. That could be through video or video later, but pictures or text. And people could like and comment. That was basically it. Then I had this forums with, topics in it as well. And I had an FAQ section with very common questions that I had seen people asking in different groups across the internet that experts had answered, right? So I had onboarded a few experts to answer, to give more credibility to the platform already. So, and then I had seeded a, a bit of content from people that I had allowed to go on the platform to see what they thought about it and they would have posted something but it wasn't like this big thing so I had maybe like 10 or 20 people that I had asked that I knew that were across the globe mostly in the diaspora to go on the platform and see how they would navigate on the platform that was all I asked some of them posted some of them just clicked around so that was what I did see if anything broke it didn't And then I just sent a few messages on LinkedIn saying, hey, I built this platform. I just went over it uh, a few hours before we talked to see. And I think I sent about 70 people a message that I had connected up previously saying I built this platform for African startups. And I did my own post two or three days before saying, Africa, it's time. There's this platform coming, really low-key PowerPoint, this kind of thing. I think, I suspect somebody significant shared it. I was never able to trace. Somebody significant shared it on a platform that started the whole traction because the next day the website crashed, but I saw over 600 applications and I had built it in a way that I wanted to do kind of quality control. So I was going to have to go over every application to see if this was somebody I wanted on the platform to initially keep that quality. So nobody was able to get in, but all of them had applied. And then the website crashed, right? That was interesting. I remember very well the next day, I was like, "Hmm, let me see. No, I was at the time building overnight and then sleeping like 5, 6 a.m. in the morning and then going on the platform to see what am I going to do today? And so I did the same, went to the same routine only that night, because I had already asked so many people if they were going on the platform, I was nervous. So I had shut down my laptop for the day. Like I was not going to look at it because I was like, I was expecting people to go like, why are you spamming me? Like, don't bother me. So <laughs> I was, I was scared to go on LinkedIn. I'm such, I'm so, <sighs> if people really knew, if people really knew, like I shut down my phone, I was so scared. <laughs> I don't know what I thought people were going to say, but I was really anxious. So the next morning I looked and then I was like, wait, I can't log in. What's going on? You know, this whole thing. And obviously it was built on WordPress. WordPress is also down a lot of the time. So it wasn't like it was that stable, but 
at the time it was really bad. WordPress would just go down and just like super embarrassing. So I quickly found somebody that I knew from one of these developer platforms. I sent him an email like, you need to help me fix this. I, I think this guy was in Indonesia. He got me up and running and he was like, oh, your homepage looks horrible. Let me fix that too. <laughs> so he quickly built a landing page that was presentable. And then that's kind of how that started. And people started to you know, try to experiment with the website. Yeah. And I understand that people were able to connect with angel investors on our platform and get their businesses funded yeah. on this platform. So how did we end up selling this? I you sold this to a U.S. firm. Yeah, I would say a year and a half in, I was already running into a lot of questions. Again, actually the same as the first one. Is this something I want to be scaling myself? Is this the business that I want to be running? And actually, I think the idea of making an impact on the continent in that way was very much close to my what I want. I think at the time, I wasn't sure if I was the right person to lead this company to that next stage. Looking in hindsight, I may have just been scared. A lot of the responsibility that was coming at me, it was quite a lot of stretching, a lot of doing things out of my comfort zone. People started to want to know who is behind the platform, which is nobody knew unless I sent you a message on LinkedIn, but that wasn't the bulk of the people on the platform. So I remember I had very clearly on the about page talked about this is our vision. Everybody's like, who is we? Like, like who's behind this? <laughs> I was so secretive about it. And I was starting to realize I wanted to onboard team members and I wanted to have people. I actually was looking for maybe partnerships and they were like, yeah, but who are you? Like, you know? And so I was realizing if I wanted this to grow, I needed to come out more and be the face of the business or have somebody else be the face of the business, but somebody, right? Because people do business with people. And that's just a fact, no matter how big or small you are. And I had come to that point where everybody thought it was interesting, but like, what are you doing? So there was no vision that was translated in kind of the the platform. It was because I was so apprehensive, it became a nice to have because what started us out as something very forward thinking and this platform that was going to unite the whole continent, diaspora, and be this groundbreaking platform for us, by us. That was actually also one of the things that I was one of the values that I had. It was becoming something that, yeah, for us, by us, but who are you? And what is your vision? <laughs> <laughs> for us, by us, but who are you? <laughs> For real, that was like, the people were genuinely starting to be turned off by that. If I'm really honest, I would send partnership emails and it wasn't even my name. Like I would just say the team. That's like, that's not who we want to do business with. Like who is entrepreneur? Like who is behind it? We want to know about you. And I was actually sabotaging that. So long story short, and as much as I wanted it to be big, like really big, I had a big vision for it. One, I was not able to translate it into the business, to the external kind of point of view for people to see what the vision was. And two, I was not, I think, in the state of mind to be scaling that business myself, whether that was fear or awareness or just it wasn't the right time for me. I don't know. 
So I had to decide to do something else. I was starting to bring people on the platform to become more active on the platform. So I was recruiting people on the platform that I saw were the most active as ambassadors. So they started sharing on LinkedIn and on Twitter what they were sharing on the platform and bringing people on. But they were also engaging with the community on the platform. And that's how I believe investors started to take note in a different way that this could be interesting because this is a platform that is not competing with any of these platforms. It's just uniquely African because that was the whole idea. The whole idea was this is a platform for the context of Africa. The whole idea was that if I am a farmer or I have a technology company in Ghana, there are certain questions I would not dare to ask on LinkedIn. Like, how do you handle lights off when you're in the middle of a presentation? Or what kind of power sources do you use? Like things that I cannot even imagine being in the Netherlands happening were questions that they would be asking each other, like practical questions. Like, how do you deal with this actual problem that I'm having facing here? Like the next village where I can get fuel is two hours away. How do you deal with that? And then somebody coming back and say, hey, actually, we built this thing here. And then now you have this, without reinventing the wheel, you have these two people on two different sides of the continent building solutions that are relevant for all of us. And that's something that would not have happened had you posted it on LinkedIn. Like people would have just unfollowed you. So it was really, that was what I was trying to build. And that was happening. And I think that is what the investors were starting to see that this is what the value is. It's Africa is so unique in its own respect that you cannot treat it like any other platform. Having said that, the companies that saw me as competitors, I did not see as competitors at all because of this reason, which is also something that I was very naive of at the time. Now I know very well, all of us have competitors, whether we like it or not. You may think you're special, but you're not, you know, so... My mom thinks <laughs> Apart from our moms, you know, but, and, and that's the same for us, right? Like we build it, it's our baby. And so now we think that there's nothing like it. Everybody's going to see that this is different. No, they're not. They're going to see a few things and say, it's like that because they need to reference it to something to understand it. That's just how our human brain works. Yeah. So they're automatically going to connect it with something that already exists that they can relate to. And this is the same for investors are human beings, competitors are human beings. So they are going to relate it to something that they recognize. And sometimes that's their company. That's their own business. Because they're like, hey, this is a platform. We have a platform. You know, we're focused on entrepreneurs. They're focused on entrepreneurs without the bigger context that you have applied to it, right? So what happened was that I was approached by this investor, said U.S. investor. They were a U.S. investor, but... We did the transaction, the whole shebang. Again, grossly underestimated the value, but also the need to have a team that has expertise in these kind of transactions. I did not understand how valuable that would be. So understanding, you know, doing due diligence on them is also important and not just the other way around. So this investor, they bought the IP. I later found out that it was one of the other competitors that actually had asked them to do that for them because they didn't want to directly be tied to the purchase because their intent was to bury the platform. It was complex enough for somebody who had not experienced something like this before to not have seen it. 
But it's something that if you were in the space, you would have, that's one of the first things you would have looked at. Like, what is their motivation? Like, what's really their motivation? Aside from what they say that they want to do. So just not taking people by their blue or brown eyes and understanding that not everybody has, is intending to follow up on what they say are their intentions was something very interesting because I didn't know this hostile environment existed actually because I was in it like I was making friends with everyone I was like you know heal the world like I was in that space and I didn't understand that this was also cold hard business that was happening and I clearly rubbed some people wrongly or put some fear of the in them which people are saying that's a good thing probably but then it would have been good if I was prepared and I saw it that way as well. And then I could have handled it accordingly. So that was also a lesson that I learned uh, very interestingly enough about don't just take anybody, everybody's money because not every money is good. Not all money is money is good for what you are looking to do. Yeah, I think it's, un- it's unfortunate that they did that whole buy and bury thing. But I think on the plus side, what we can take away as the audience is that in both cases where your, your companies were acquired, you never had to approach someone and say, hey, would you buy my company? I'm looking to exit. You showed the value so much in what the platforms um, demonstrated that they came to you. And, you know, it's always better to show the value rather than tell people, hey, there's value over there. There's value over here. You know, so that's that's great. All right. I, I want to briefly talk about scaling. I know, you know, Euphoria and Coso, I mean, you previously were hesitant to, put yourself as the face of your company. Now you do it religiously. Kudos to you. So you started Ophorian Co. to help companies scale and, um, of course, advise on idea development and business model design and whatnot. Now, I know that you have a scale-up DNA, which is a five-factor model, you know, compelling vision, great market, delighted customers, competitive advantage, scalable model. Can you just briefly run through those for us? Wow, yes, I can. I could, I could, t- I could say, it. I could say it for you as you go. It's the number one compelling vision. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. So the scale of DNA really came about just for a bit of context, based on research that was done here in the Netherlands, but globally. So I was working with this company as an assignment called Scale Up Nation. The founder is an ex-McKinsey director who was asked by Deloitte to run an analysis over a database of over 500,000 companies worldwide, startups, because they had this Chinese wall, they were not allowed to do it themselves. And he was analyzing that data and he was trying to find patterns, right? And things that he could link into what is happening with these startups, first of all, how are they evolving over time? And what is making that some startups were succeeding, a very small group, and what, what was like some of them were still stalling and others were failing. Aside from this metric that we have about 99% of companies fail, yeah, we know that. But why are the 1% succeeding? We don't know that. We just think we know because we have built all of these frameworks about how a company should look like. But then that's based on kind of you building a corporate that at some point just stagnates and has its market share and just tries to keep its market share. Whereas a scale-up, which different definitions exist, is a company that would be evolving over time and keeps growing, which is a different animal. It's not a corporate, but it's also no longer a startup. It's a company that is big enough to make impact, but not big enough to compete with a corporate in some sense. So 
He did this research and found out some of the success factors that were really weighing heavily on whether or not a company would be successful in scaling. The first of that would be like a a compelling vision. And one of the reasons why this was so groundbreaking in the research was because vision was usually something that was not taught in business school as being something as being important, right? So when you look at what is being taught about running a successful business, it's always going to be about operations and costs and apex and capex and all of these things that you need to think about. That is really things that you can measure quite easily because it's controlled, which is logical that we would then say, this is how you steer this because these are metrics we can look at and kind of turn tables on. But the compelling vision was very important for both internal and external factors. And the internal factor would be companies that were able to define very clearly where they were going for themselves. Automatically, they had more direction. Automatically, they were able to strategize based on that direction. Automatically, they were able to inform their teams the right way because of their vision. And they were able to bring people with them because it's compelling. And compelling is, you could say it's subjective, but it's something that is inspiring, right? It's something that you want to strive to. And that is something that is key in this entrepreneurship. Maybe in a corporate, you don't have to be as inspiring. Maybe back in the day, if we're looking at, if I was creating Tupperware, how inspiring does it have to be, right? You just know people buy Tupperware. We can supply Tupperware. We need to sell more Tupperware. But now we have all of the solutions that people actually would need or not, and you decide whether how much they understand how much they need your product or service. And you decide how much more your employees want to contribute to that vision. And so a compelling vision is internally is very important, but also people now have more options. And this is why having a compelling vision is even more important because what you mentioned early on, that competitive advantage is tied to that, right? People also see a company that sells Tupperware for the sake of it and a company that sells Tupperware to then build on something else, like build, recycle it, or they sell it in a way that is now forward thinking or looking to the future, or some of the money is going to uh, something that you care about. It's a different context and people would like to support something with more meaning nowadays. So this is why that is a very important one for vision. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's very, it's pretty much saying that folks should be advocates for whatever it is that their business is doing, yes. right? I mean, beyond, beyond okay, I, I want to advocate for this so I, I can make some money by selling you this product. So for instance, I'm trying to be an advocate of value or the awareness of value in what you're doing. You're, you're not necessarily just advocate, oh, this is my guess, you're not necessarily just advocating for people to build bigger businesses and make more money. You're probably advocating for people to control their own financial destiny. You know, to have that that freedom lifestyle, you know, just by making better business decisions. Exactly. All right. Okay. So you spoke about compelling vision. You spoke about competitive advantage. Great market. Yeah. So great market. And we don't say big market intentionally because great market is really about more than just how big is it. Great market is nowadays also about how is it going to evolve? Because there we've seen some markets die out and shrink because they're no longer relevant nowadays. And we're moving and shifting to different markets now where other things that were not relevant before are becoming more relevant now. So great market really is looking at the present. 
is this market interesting enough for us to scale in now, but also to the future? How is it evolving? And is our solution growing with that or are we able to grow with that? Obviously, in technology, there's a lot of options for scale, but it's not for every industry. That's not necessarily the case for, with every industry and sector. So just because you have a technology company doesn't mean you're scalable by default, which is, I think, a misconception that is being used a lot of the times now. Right now, it's going to be about, one, how, yes, how big is the market? So are we really looking at, you know, it would be great if it's a billion-dollar market, but at least a multi-million-dollar market. Then in that, your addressable market, which is really going to be about, and your addressable market is really has to be close to what you can grow into as well. Your company should not have this one product that fits here today that you could sell to a million people. No, your company needs to have something that you could sell now to a million people. And as it gets better and evolves over time, could be selling to the wider addressable market as the market changes as well. So do you have your innovation roadmap set up for that? So great market is intentionally chosen for that reason. But of course, we, we covered delighted customers enough early on in this episode. And of course, we covered scalable business model. Now, I just want to go into one more framework. You know, I'm, a, I'm a framework geek. Um, I know you have a lead framework that you developed. Okay, let's walk us through that real quick. Yeah. So I came across over the years, I started to have get more requests from executives that were struggling with really finding out what is it that I contribute uniquely and how can I tap into that and being in the lead of my own personal impact within the business, right? And so a lot of us, we get this role either because we're, we founded a business, so automatically we are now the leaders as well. And then others, if you're still working within a company or you're leading a team, it's sometimes very difficult to not go with what is expected of you and go with the flow and do what has already been done because somebody decided that's how we do things. I started to look back into my life and I realized that I had consistently been doing things differently. <laughs> like I was not following the beaten path at all. And it wasn't even intentional, but there was one thing that was this red thread in my life. And that is that I was doing the things that I felt needed to be done at the time. I was taking the lead in my decisions. None of these decisions were reactive. Like I was be proactively making decisions for my life. And so deciding to get my first job, then deciding to try myself for another job in a market that I wasn't licensed for, then trying to find a way to understand how can I get licensed when I don't have a degree to then move to Dubai and find out how I can navigate there. There were all of these decisions I was making because I wanted to be there and I wanted to reach that regardless of what other people may say would be limitations. One of the reasons why a lot of people are, I think, hung up on the story about Dubai, because understanding the climate there, it's an incredibly competitive market to be if you're looking to start a career. So you have to understand that the smartest people in the world with PhDs, double masters, first in class, scholarship kind of people are going there, applying for top level jobs 
and they're the only ones getting them. And one job would get six to 700 applications at a time. So for you to go to Dubai and get a job that is not selling perfume, which is no disrespect, but requires a certain level of access and network and kind of a certain skill set in a certain industry really is going to be about your credentials in the very, very fundamentals. And so how do you then still take the lead and how, okay, but what is another way to get there? And I think this is where that actually started for me, that I really understood once I was able to hack that, when I was able to hack networking in a way that worked for me as an introvert, when I was able to hack being a leader of my team as an introvert, as somebody who had never done it before, learning as I was going that that was okay. All of these things I was teaching myself and I was able to coach other executives to do because again, you're being taught one thing in school, but also just in the school of life that this is how you do it. And this is how other people succeeded. So that's the only way to now saying, hey, but if I'm going to live this life, I might as well do it the way I want to. So how can I still get to where I want to go without having proven that it's going to work? Well, the only really sure thing about that is you can make anything work, right? It just is going to be about how do you look at the end result? What do you look the end, What do you want the end result to look like? And what I mean with that is you may say you want to become a CEO of the company you're working in or change the framework, remove the box. You could become a CEO, period. It doesn't have to be with this company, but you could be a CEO if you wanted to, right? So that's what the lead framework is all about. It's about thinking outside of the box and without going into, because I think methodologies are what they are, but I think at the core, that's what I do with this methodology. I really go deep into what is your value? What are some of the things that you can tap into? And you've, you've said it a couple of times before. Value is a huge thing for me, whether it is in business or personal leadership. What is your value? And how can you maximize the things that you can maximize your life and really tap from that to make smarter decisions, better decisions? whether it is in business or in your personal life. All right. So I know we've been going, going for quite some time now. And as we get ready to wrap up, I just want to ask you. So I know that during the pandemic, you, you spoke on a lot of platforms, you spoke on a lot of CHAs, you delivered a lot of presentations worldwide on business model resilience and scalability. So I just want to ask specifically for, and I know your company focuses on, Enterprises start generating revenues of somewhere between 1 million euros to up to 200 million euros, I think it is. So that's medium-sized business sort of landscape, that segment there. How would you advise them to either pivot, restructure, or just remain resilient, especially focusing on their long-term goals during periods like the pandemic or any just during any sorts of external shocks where they're vulnerable to what is happening in an environment that they can't control? Yeah, I mean, we live in it's such a great question because we live in such volatile times, right? And a lot of these organizations that are hitting the 200 million, well, that has changed as well. But traditionally, if you're in the 200 million range, you've been here for quite some time. There are some super shooters that are just, you know, getting their 
in a shorter period of time, but it has become more important than ever now to remain relevant when it comes to the word again, innovation, right? And so I have seen in large corporates shutting down entire departments and replacing them with small innovation units, trying to find out what is happening in the market, what is happening with our customers, and what can we do to stay relevant? Like, how can we develop things that add value to our customers today? Because we can no longer just build it and they will come. So I think this is a very, very important thing that corporates, large corporates can tap into, which is, I'm not saying shut down departments, but investing more in externally, looking externally and being in touch with your customers. It's very difficult when you have 200, 500,000 customers, a million customers to say, hey, let's ask them what they want because you're like, oh, they're paying us monthly or annually, so we're good. But times are changing and you're no longer the only competitor. We're seeing it in the financial markets very abruptly where the bank was the central place to do anything with finances. You had to use your bank. And now you have private places, you have online platforms that can take your you from A to Z to buy a house. You have online platforms that can help you finance your business that have some of them just got their banking license through other ways. And there are so many different ways that you can now access funds. You no longer need to invest through your investment manager. There are apps for that. So let's not even talk about digital, uh, you know, tokenization and digital currencies. There are so many opportunities for you to do things differently that as a corporate, you need to start asking yourself where, what, this is already happening. It's already a fact that innovation is happening. The markets have already changed. The question for corporates is no longer what is happening? Should we do something with it? No, the question is, what are we going to do with it? What is our position in the market today? And reevaluate what you thought you were going to be doing for the next 50 years, because it's not going to take that long for you to become irrelevant, right? So we've seen a lot of business go down even faster. The movie industry, I mean, we all know the blockbuster story. We all know so many of these platforms that just don't exist because they didn't innovate fast enough. So I would say if you would bank on anything in your business, bank on the people that are thinking differently within your organization. There are still, especially if you're hiring new people, hire millennials. I think they're, no, the Gen Zs and the people that are in it today, that are you, that are going to be your customers tomorrow. Those are the people you need to be bringing in. Working together with the people that have built expertise over years it's not replacing, it's building together now, right? And then finding out what works for tomorrow. Yeah. And of course, you could find Kimberly at KimberlyOfori.com. Um, LinkedIn is the best platform to get her. We could find a company, Oforian, Oforian, go at OforianCompany.com. All right. So Kimberly, as we get ready to wrap, is there anything you want to say to the audience that we haven't covered in, in this episode? You have open mic, open forum, open platform. Well, I guess, I mean, your audience is very diverse, but I do think that for those entrepreneurs, for those that are investment ready and those that are really looking to scale their operations, 
I would say stay true to the vision, stay true to what you started it out to be. It's very easy to start getting distracted by everything that is happening around you. And everybody was raising money and everybody was exiting and like focus on why you started this business in the first place and build a really, really solid foundation on that. And everything else will come. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent advice. Excellent insight. Kimberly, thank you very much for taking your time with us today. And we wish you the best. Thank you, Kevin. Podcast World, there you have it. To scale or to exit with Kimberly Bufori. Subscribe to The Value at thevalue.show. Be sure to leave us a five-star review in your podcast player of choice. I think this episode really showed us the beauty and the vagaries of entrepreneurship, the ups and downs, the learnings of our failures and the triumphs of our perseverance. In the next episode, we're going to talk about an issue plaguing almost every small town, every developing nation around the world. And that is the brain drain. I look forward to discussing that with you. Till next time, Podcast World, we are out. <laughs>